I was thinking this morning, um, I had a dream when I was a kid, not much different age than many of the kids who are walking out the door right now. And my dream was this, I wanted to be an architect. It may surprise you today, I am not an architect. It's pretty surprising, but see, I like to draw, and I was fascinated by the way buildings looked, and I was pretty good in math, and so I thought, like, oh, I think I could do this. I could draw stuff and design it, and I, I still think looking at blueprints is kind of fun, um, but I never became an architect. But I'm still fascinated by buildings, right? Buildings fascinate me. Like, some buildings have lasted a really long time. Other buildings have not lasted very long at all, and you always wonder, why did this building last and that building not last? And so I was thinking about some buildings that you may know of some of these, or maybe you don't, and so we're going to look at a few of them. So this first one is called the Florence Cathedral. Um, it's in Florence, Italy, and so it is built, by the way, in 1436. Pretty impressive, 1436, several hundred years old. Um, maybe you've heard of the Taj Mahal, built in 1631. Still exists, still looks very nice. Or maybe this one's more up your alley. If you were a Cinderella fan, this is the, the castle, the, the, I can never say this word well, but Neuschwanstein Castle. And this is like the inspiration for Cinderella's castle at Disney World or Disneyland. And then there's Westminster Abbey. It was built in 1269, by the way. 1269, it's not very new. Um, but it still exists. Maybe you saw it on TV this weekend. I did not. I had better things to do with my life. No, um, sorry. You didn't get that. It's okay. Um, and then maybe you've heard of the pyramids of Giza. They were built in the 26th century BC, over 4,000 years ago, and they still exist. Right? These buildings have stood the test of time. There's no way around that. I mean, they still exist. You can go see them. They are real. They've, lived, they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then there's buildings that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years but are on their way out. Like, they're definitely crumbling and they're going to fall. It's just a matter of not if but when. And so one that jumped out to me was the Roman Colosseum that was built in um, 80 AD. So it's about 2,000 years old. Pretty good run. Right? I mean, it's on its way out. You can still go visit for who knows how much longer, but, but it still exists. And so these buildings have lasted for generations and generations and generations. And then there are other buildings that were built, and when they were built, they had a ton of fanfare, and they thought they would last forever, and they had really short lifestyle, life cycles. And so the two that jumped out to me that I thought I would just share about today, uh, here's the first one. It's the Crystal Palace that existed in London, and it was built in, in 1851 and lasted until 1936. 45 years. That's it. Glass and steel and beautiful. It's no longer there. You can't find it. Or then we could talk about the church of the Archangel Michael in Warsaw, Poland. It was built in 1892. Right, listen to these days. 1892. It was destroyed in 1923. 1932, I'm sorry. Didn't last that long. Beautiful building. Incredible. Structurally, it was built well, but they tore it down. Right? Partly for history, partly for other things, but, but they didn't last. And so, thinking about, when we think about buildings, right? Like, which ones last, which ones don't? Like, you, could, you probably have your own list that you would come up with the buildings that you think about that you used to drive by, and it used to be there, and that one used to be there, and you used to really be impacted by it, and it was a really cool place for you to go visit, or whatever it might be. And you think, well, it's no longer there. What, what's the reason? Why does it not exist anymore? And so I was thinking about, here's the reality for all the buildings that still exist, even if they're relatively new. All of them, to continue to stay standing, have to have a good foundation. 
It's not rocket science, right? Buildings will not last on bad foundations. They will crumble, they will fall, they will be destroyed, right? We, we all know probably buildings we can think of and major cities where that if their foundation had been better, it would still exist, but because the foundation wasn't good, it doesn't exist any longer. And so I was thinking that I think this is part of what Peter is trying to articulate in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's thinking about what is the foundation of your life? What do you build your life and legacy on? And I think about like, because here's the reality, um, foundations matter. They matter, right? They matter in our families. And here, here's an example of that. If your family has a foundation of like, you, you all work really hard and that's passed on to the next generation and the next generation works hard and it keeps passing on, then the family is known as they, like, they work hard. Or maybe um, one generation worked really hard and then they didn't ask the next generation to work hard. And then years later, they're like, ah, that generation today, they just don't work hard. And you're like, well, yeah, you didn't, you did it, but you didn't teach them to do it. Or we could talk about families that have like, you know, they have really good stewards of their money and they're compassionate and they're generous and they're gracious. And the next generation is the same and on down the line it goes, right? We can pass stuff off from generation to generation over and over again. We also pass sometimes there's things that have been foundations of our families that we wish hadn't been. And they lead to cycles of brokenness over and over again. And some of you could articulate that much better than I. And so what is, it, is the foundation of your life, right? This is the question I was thinking about this week as I was reading these words from 1 Peter chapter 2. Here is what Peter says. And I'm thinking as, as Peter's writing about this idea of families, foundations for good or bad, right? Here's the reality. Our foundation, whether good or bad, um, it has impact, and foundations, right, the values that we live by, they are not defined just by um, what we say. Because sometimes we have family values we articulate with words, right? Like this is a family value. But yet if we were to look at your lives, what you do, it is anything but a family value. And so Peter, who is in a relationship with Jesus, had taken the words of Jesus and they had impacted his life. And so I can't help but think that he is trying to articulate what this says. And so Peter tells this story about foundations in his letter. But I can't help but think that he's coming back to this teaching of Jesus. The central teaching of Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he ends this sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he ends with these words from chapter 7. He says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Again, Jesus uses an illustration that buildings are only as good as their foundation. <clears throat> If the foundation of a building is poor, it's going to crumble. It's not going to last. And Jesus says, here's the foundation for your life. If you are my follower, if you're one of my people, here's the foundation for your life. It is to take the words and the teachings that I give you and put them into practice in your life. It's not just to hear them and think about them, but it's to do them. And so this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the central teaching of Jesus. And here's what the Sermon on the Mount says. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I've done this before, and you're like, yeah, I know. You keep doing it often. You're right, I do, because it literally is the central teaching of Jesus. And hopefully you and I will begin to quote it ourselves over and over again over time. It will become something that not only do we hear, but we embrace and we live. 
So here's what Jesus says in his central teaching. He says this, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. He then changes tact a little bit and he says this, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shouldn't be angry. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shouldn't lust. You've heard it said, just don't swear by the temple, but I say to you, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. In other words, get even. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you might be called children of your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, not if, when you pray, not if, and he teaches us how to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, are we living in such a way that the heavens he talks about in the scriptures, and he says over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is like, are we taking those things and bringing them into the world or not? He then says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not store up for yourselves treasures. You can love God or money, not both. Do not worry, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. I right? use this kind of grotesque analogy of like if you have a speck in someone else's eye and you point out but you've got a plank in your own eye in other words like look at yourself before you speak about others and this one so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you not don't do what you don't want done to you but do to others regardless of their activity do to others what you wish someone would do for you what Jesus is saying then in this little parable he gives about the wise and foolish builder is this. If you will take these teachings and put them into practice, the foundation of your life will be solid. That No matter what storm in life may come, you will last. You will survive. Because storms will come. But if this is the foundation of who you are, you can overcome whatever the storm may look like. Your foundation is solid. It's built to last. And this brings us back to Peter's writing in chapter 2, and here's what he writes. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted, the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's painting with the pictures of the Old Testament, these pictures over and over again about what it looks like to be the unique people of God. How often what we think about God, the categorization, right, this idea, he uses this picture of Jesus as the foundation, this cornerstone. And if we were to think about buildings, right, we come back to the idea of buildings, we'll also see buildings that have, have a cornerstone, literally. In that cornerstone, they'll put like the year it was built, or they'll put you know, some influential person or the biggest donor, right? But, but if you took that stone out, the whole thing literally would fall apart. Like that stone is integral to the structure of the building. And what Peter is trying to say is this, Jesus is integral to every promise of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He is the fulfillment of the promises of the people of God. And if you will let him be the foundation of your life, then you will no longer be just who you have been, but you become a part of the people of God. He is the foundational figure the one on whom the church is built upon, the one whom you and I are invited to build our lives upon. Jesus gives his followers this invitation that if you will receive him, who is the living stone, this cornerstone, if you and I will receive the life that he offers, then we become conduits to give life to those who we come into contact with. We're called to live as people who reflect his love and give life to others by the way that we love and the way that we live. And it's all centered upon who Jesus is is. He is the living stone. And he says, when you come to know him, we too become living stones, and together we become a spiritual house. So Jesus, the living stone, invites us to become stones that are also living, that we'd be built up to become a spiritual house, and we would say it this way, we become the church. These things grow together in this way that they're built upon one another. So in other words, I'd say it this way. We are not to become a spiritual house. We are a spiritual house by virtue of being followers of Jesus. We are built together. And the question is, what is the foundation of that church? Are we reflecting the love of Jesus in the way that we live and love and speak? And so what Peter says is this, for you to be the living stone that God's called you to be, that he's invited you to be, to be this unique person that he created you to be, for you to be that sometimes, so it begins with verses 1 and 2, we have to rid ourselves, we have to get rid of certain things, we have to let go of past things, we have to subtract some stuff from our life. We have to strip some things off. And here's a couple of things, he gives just a few brief things here, he talks about deceit. And the word for deceit is doulos, which means that your motives are never pure. So if you're a person that your motives are never pure, that it's always ulterior, knock it off. It's kind of simple, actually. It talks about hypocrisy. Right? The root word of hypocrisy is this idea that you are an actor, like literally, like think about theater, actor, movie star, whatever, that you act a certain way because you are playing a role. And hypocrisy is this idea that I'm going to act a certain way. I'm going to play a particular role. It's not really who I am, but I'm going to play that role because I want you to think differently of me, and I'll act radically different someplace else. And so here's the reality for the church. You and I are called to be people who are genuine and authentic and honest with who we are. 
faults and all. Sometimes we've not done a good job of that in the church. We've made it feel like you don't feel like you're like perfect. You've got it all together, that you're not welcome, and so you just fake it until you make it kind of thing. We don't want that. Like, that's not valuable. In fact, that's the opposite of valuable. Now, we also don't need you to stand up in the room today and go, hey, here's my greatest sin and my greatest problem. We just thought you should all know. Also not necessary, by the way. But there should be people in your life that do know. There should be people in your life that you have confessed to. There should be people in your life who are helping you become all that God has called you to be, of ridding yourselves of the hypocrisy of your life. There should be those people that do that for you and I. And he talks about envy. Envy is more than like liking what someone else has. Envy is this idea that what someone else has, not only do I want what they have, but I want them to not have it so I have more than they have. It talks about slander. Slander is like tasting gossip and putting on steroids a little bit. Gossip is already bad enough. We talk about some, but slander is like, I'm going to talk badly about them trying to discredit them. We know what it's like to receive that, but we're called to never be givers of that. And here's why Peter is saying to get rid of all those things, because in chapter 1, he reminded people what the center thing of being a follower of Jesus is. It's centered on the sacrificial, selfless love of Jesus. And so if we live from the love of Jesus, then these things are not a part of our life. Hypocrisy or deceit or slander or envy or a number of other things. Why? Because they are not love. In fact, they are the opposite of love. These things dehumanize, objectify, and destroy other people. They also destroy us. And they're counter to who Jesus has called us to be. Because here's the cool thing about the way God works. It's not that God just wants to save us and like, that's it, we're done. He wants to save us from something to something. In other words, he wants us to strip off some things, but to put on some other things. And so Peter goes on to write this, that you're going to crave pure spiritual milk. What's that look like? What's he saying, right? I, I mean, I don't, I've never had, I mean, I guess I've had kids, but I've never been the one who feeds kids. Like, that's not, I can't do that. But have you ever noticed babies are always looking for mom? They're always looking for mom because they're hungry. They want to eat. And every time they find mom, they know that there's a better chance they're going to eat, right? That's how that works. Like, dad doesn't function in that way, and so it's not helpful. So they're always looking for mom. But this is what Peter's trying to say. It's just like a, a kid who recognizes that mom is the, the source of life, the source of substance. In the same way... Or to long for Jesus is to be the one who sustains us, who's the source of our life, the one that we build our foundation on, the one we keep going to again and again because it gives us life. All right, so what are those things we add on to our life? If we've subtracted some things, we've gotten rid of, we've stripped off, we add on, like the idea we talked about spiritual disciplines, we spend time in prayer. We spend time in acts of service for the kingdom of God, right? We serve other people. Whether it be in our community, or in our church, or in our neighborhood, or in our school, right? We volunteer. That's the way we do. We serve. We spend time reading the scriptures. Right? I've said before, like I know, I know sometimes the Bible feels really daunting, and it kind of is, like we're honest, because context matters, and there's a whole bunch that goes with that. So I'll, I'll say this again today: um, if if it feels intimidating to you, here's what I would encourage you to do: read the book of James. It is incredibly practical. Right? It's like, what's it look like to live this out? And then read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'd start with John, and then, and then read them again. And if you just read those five books, and that's literally all you read, here's the thing. You could follow Jesus. You would find out who he is and what he calls you to do. We can eventually branch out more, but if you spent the next year or five years reading those five books, it would change who you are. 
come to know who Jesus is, right? We begin to know the practices that matter, like silence and solitude, beginning our day saying, God, I want to, I want to live for you today. Help me to let go of whatever it is that's hindering me, or, or before I go to bed at night, God, what are the areas today where I wasn't like you that I need to, I need to confess those? And we hope me not to live like that tomorrow. Right, this is the invitation. These are the things we add on. This is the craving of pure spiritual milk. This is what we're trying to do over and over again, that he would be the source of our life. That's why Peter says, taste that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34, right? This is the idea that, that there's something sustaining that comes from God that can come from no other place, because every other place that we build as a foundation for our life will not last. It will crumble. So what Peter's trying to say is this. Here's why it matters, because if that's the foundation of your life, then here's who you'll become. You'll become a royal or holy priesthood. Holy priesthood. Every once in a while, um, I get called a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm, you know, if I was Episcopalian or Roman Catholic or Anglican, then maybe, but I'm, I'm not. But I every once in a while, someone will, because you know, their, their background or whatever, they call me a priest. I've been called father as well. Um, that's fine, too. There was a guy, Bill Blakesley, who passed away a few years ago from our church, and Bill used to call me holy vicar. Um, I responded with, I'd rather supreme pontiff, but it never worked out. So, um, you know, whatever. But, but the idea of priests, or this idea that priests function in this particular role, priests were the ones that made intercession for the people of God. They were the ones who went into this place that was holy in God's presence. They made intercession for people. They offered up sacrifices for, for people. They would go into this place and they would be the conduits for God's love to his people to help them be in right relationship with God. Right? That's the role of a priest. The priest had access with God, but it was so that they could share that access with others, not just so they could hoard it for themselves. In fact, the word priest in Latin is the word pontifex, which means bridge builder. The role of the priest was to be a bridge builder to the people of God from God. That's what Peter's saying. From the living stone, we become living stones that together become the people of God, known as what? A royal priesthood. What does that mean? We are people who build bridges connecting people to God. You're not as excited about that as I am, but you should be. You and I are the ones who serve as the holy priesthood, who are made right through the person of Jesus, and that are called to be conduits, bridge builders, to help connect people to God. See, here's the reality. There's no way you and I get to be called a man or woman of God apart from the people of God. The idea that you could be a single solitary Christian on your own is like counter to the whole entire New Testament. It cannot exist. You and I are called to be a part of a unique people, a group of people. We're invited to be part of a holy priesthood. And this is what Peter's saying all throughout his letter. Because the priests, they offered up sacrifices. You and I don't have to do that. Jesus offered sacrifice. We offer sacrifices radically different than they did in the Old Testament. We offer sacrifice by giving our whole selves, our entire being, are offered as sacrifice to God. How we live is living a life of sacrifice. You and I are called to be this holy priesthood who says, God, you can have all of me, and all of me will function and live as you have called me to live, and I will be your bridge builder in the world, connecting people to the love of God seen in your son, Jesus. And anything less than that 
is not who you and I have been called or created to be. We do this for the sake of others so that all people can know the depth of God's love. Again, what Peter wrote was this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are chosen by God. You're invited to be his priest. You and I are invited to be a part of something that connects people to the divine creator of all. You and I are called to strip off whatever it is that hinders us from being a part of his priesthood. You and I are called to strip off those things that we hide in darkness but to live in light. You and I are called to be his people. So what does that look like in our lives? That becomes an obvious question, right? So there's something I was thinking about personally, right? Um, One of the temptations for anybody who serves in any kind of role in any organization that has any kind of leadership at all, the temptation is this, to care way more about our charisma than our integrity, So my goal, like one of my goals in life, is I want to develop my integrity more than my charisma. Sounds kind of simple. We know in in pretty much every organization, competency matters. Like like being good at what you do matters. And so here's the reality. I want to develop my character over my competency. Because integrity and character, if those are built well, then my competency I can work on, my charisma I can try to get better. But if I focus on those other two things, then who I become, it will crumble around me. And it's true in your life, it's true in our homes, it's true in our workplaces. Charisma and competency might get us in the door, but they won't sustain us. And here's why that matters, because our priorities, right, are the foundation of our life, or I said this way, our foundation is seen in our priorities, but our values are lived. We live out our values. We can say all the day long that something is a value to us, but if we don't invest our time or our money or like what we do in that, then we don't really value it. It's, it may be an aspirational value, but it's not a real value. Our real values are lived. And so the question for you and I is, are we living from the values we actually want? Is Jesus truly the foundation we build our life on? All right, so here's one of those I, I've been wrestling with. I, I say all the time, right, I want my kids to know how much I love them, and I want to lift them, and I go, oh, sometimes I look at my calendar and it's where I've spent my time, and I probably have not invested enough time with my kids. So while I can say all day it's a value of mine until I change my schedule, it's not really a value. Right? I say I want values to be, I want, my, I want to live a disciplined life, right? And so, so one of the ways this plays out in my own life, not necessarily a good one, by the way, um, I like structure to my day. I like to start my day in very particular ways. And so I don't like when my days get thrown off because it kind of messes me up. I'm the person that when we go on vacation, I will say to my wife, what is the plan for the day? And she'll say, well, we have no plans for the day. I'm like, okay, then that means we can't add any plan because if you say like at two o'clock we're going to go do this, it's going to mess me up because I had worked out the whole day in my head and now I can't relax it because I don't know what's going to happen. I know, maybe that's just me. That's not you. I'm not saying that's not you. But if I know what the plan is, then I can rest. Sorry. That's who I am. Maybe you're like that, maybe you're not. But I know this, I want my kids to learn to like, work hard 
And so I try to model that and invite them and give them chores and have them do stuff. I want to be known as loving. And so I'm praying daily, what's it look like to love more, better, or different? Right? I, I, want, um, I want my kids to be compassionate and gracious and generous. And there are moments that, because I've worked hard to try to teach my kids that, that sometimes they teach me that. I, always, I, I laugh about it. It's, it's um, pretty much every time we see someone who's homeless on the side of the street, one of my kids is like, hey, we should make sure they get dinner. And so I always think about the time we were walking through Louisville, Kentucky, about last summer, I think, and, and Isaac's, there's this homeless man. Isaac goes, Dad, I think he needs dinner. I'm like, okay. And he goes, no, no, we should go make sure he gets dinner. I said, okay. So we go, and I said, we, Isaac and I took him to dinner. Right? Katie and Gracie waited for us, and then we, we had dinner together. But, like, but this is the reality. Like, those kind of things are taught and lived out. Right? Sometimes our kids teach us values that we've wanted to instill in them, but in the moment it didn't sound like fun. Right? That, we, we know that too. But here's the reality for us. Sometimes there are values we're living by that we don't really like. In fact, when we step back and look at our family values, we recognize they are a value of ours. We can say all day long that we don't value this above other things, but when it takes all of our time or all of our money or all of our energy, then it, it's a value. We go, well, I don't want it to be a value. Well, that's fine, but it is. Right? So we sometimes have aspirational values, like what we wish, but then we do nothing to get to those aspirational values. Like we can say, we, right? like I, I want my kids to learn to tithe, so we try to remind them that, hey, when you make money, you should give 10% to the church. That's what we do. That's what, what I've always done. My parents taught me that when I was a kid. I'll continue to teach my kids, and then someday my grandkids. Right? Like that's a value of ours. Because I think God calls us to be generous, and so I want them to learn that. But if I say it's a value and I don't do that, then it's not really a value. If I say I value serving, but I don't really serve anyone, it's not really a value. If I say I care about our community, but I don't serve in our community at all, it's not really a value. If I say all these things are values, or I really want to be faithful to Jesus, but I spend no time with Jesus, it's not really a value. If I say having my kids grow up in church, but I only come once every 12 weeks, it's not really a value. Like, these are the things that matter. By the way, good job. You're here today. That counts. It helps shape the rhythm of our lives. But we can't say something is a value of ours if it's not something we invest time and energy in. If it's not something we speak of and do. As a church, we have values that we hope we live from, right? There's, we talk about things that, that God calls us to be disciples of his, but we, we say, well, what, what are some values for us, right? We want to be intentional in our growth. We want to offer extreme generosity. We want to show extravagant love, right? Authentic relationships, right? Sometimes those feel aspirational and sometimes they're real but they matter. Here's the reality for you and I. We're building the foundation of ourself, of our family, of the church, every moment of every day. We never stop building the foundation, but the question is, what is that foundation built upon? Is it a value we actually want to live from, or is it one that just sounds good? Because what Jesus says is this, if you'll build your foundation on my life and my teaching, on my ministry, on my death, and my resurrection, then no matter what the storm of life may be, you'll find it's more than enough. That you will not crumble. He doesn't promise that storms won't come. In fact, he promises they will. But when those storms come, when they hit your life, you'll find that he is more than enough to sustain you. And so the question for you and I is this, what is the foundation of our life? Are the values that our kids would say, or our values, or our grandkids, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, or our friends, are those the values we actually want to define us or not? 
I can't answer that for you. I can barely answer it for myself. But we step back and we look at our lives and say, is this who I want to be? Am I building the family I desire or not? Or are there some things, whether it be hypocrisy or slander or envy, or are there some things I need to, to strip off and redo the foundation? I talked earlier about this idea that um, the buildings, those, all those buildings I showed earlier that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, some thousands of years, here is the reality for all of them. They all take restoration and renovation on a regular basis. They do. None of those buildings would exist, right? Buildings will last about maybe 100 years or so, give or take, depending on if we just let them go. Like weather and stuff will grow around them and it will just crumble them over time. But, but buildings to last, like restoration and renovation, and the truth is the foundation of our lives is no different. Right? We need God to be working in our hearts, in our minds, in our families, in our workplaces, in those, in, especially in and through us. And so the question I have for you today is, what, is, what do you value? Right? Are those values the foundation you want your family to be built upon or not? Or your friendships? Or, right? Is that the foundation of who you want to be or not? And if it's not, like, here's the beautiful thing about who Jesus is. He comes to you and I and he says, like, hey, that, we can strip all that off. We can restore and renovate and we can build a new foundation. So that your life doesn't have to be what it has been. So that what has been broken from generation to generation, your family doesn't have to continue. So that what has had your heart held captive doesn't have to hold your heart captive any longer. But you can find that my love will be more than enough for your life. And if you'll build your life on the foundation of me, what you'll find again and again is no matter what you experience, it is more than enough to make it through. So this moment towards the end of Jesus' life, when he was, right before he was betrayed, he sat around the table with his disciples, and he, they ate this meal together. When they ate this meal together, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And we talk, call it taking communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And we gather on this table, we recognize in our tradition, like, like Jesus isn't literally sitting here in the room with us, but we say this is symbolic of what he did with his followers. We talk about as a means of grace, right? This idea that is an outward sign of God's inward work in our life. And so what we say every time we come to this table, and this morning we give invitation, what we're saying is a few things when we come to partake in this table. We're saying this, that, Jesus, I, there may be some things in my life I need to strip off. But I believe you're more than sufficient, and you offer grace to do that. Jesus, I believe you love me more than words could ever express, and I want to live my life for you, so help me to live my life for you. And I want you to be the source of my life. I want you to be what sustains me, and I want your love and your grace and your mercy to be what define my heart and my life and my home. And we come to the table recognizing that sometimes there's some things that need to be restored or made new. Need some renovation. Every time we come to the table, we're reminding ourselves that we need his grace to be the foundation of our life. That his love wants to define us. And so this morning, as we prepare to come to the table, maybe you just need today something needs to be stripped off. Maybe you need to add something to you. Maybe you need more of his grace, more time with him. Or maybe this morning you say, hey, there's some stuff, there's some values in my family that I know that they're values by the way we spend our money and our time and our energy. And I don't want those to be the most defining values. So help me to change them. 
And God, maybe today as we come to this table, we recognize that we have received his grace, but we need to recognize we're called to be givers of his grace. And so as we come to the table to receive this, we're reminded that we're called to be givers, to be a royal, holy priesthood, to build bridges in the world, bridges of love that connect people to God. This morning, whatever it is that you need to come, the question for you and I is the same. What is the foundation of your life? What Peter wants us to know is this, that if Jesus becomes the foundation, no matter what you experience, it will lead to transformation. And so this morning, may you and I find that Jesus is the foundation of who we are, of what we do, of the homes that we create. May you and I be the kind of people who entrust our whole selves to Jesus and find that whatever the storms may come, he is more than enough to get us through. I'm going to pray, and then some are going to come. We'll invite anyone who wants to come to the table this morning to come. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today. For the way in which you love us, the way in which you care for us, for the way in which you invite us to come near. And so, Father, today as we prepare to take communion, we ask that you would help us to receive your gift of grace and love and mercy. That we would recognize that we're invited to come to your table because it is a reminder that we can find that you offer pure spiritual milk that can transform us. May we long for you the way infants long for their mothers. May we recognize that you can sustain us to give us a life beyond what we ever could comprehend or imagine. And so, Father, help us this day to recognize that your love for us transcends anything in our past that you can redeem and restore, that you can remove whatever obstacles or barriers or things that have kept us from you. May we find your love is more than enough for all we need. For all this in Jesus' name, amen.